in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. All right, well, I think we're I think we're good to get going here. I have in our order welcome, but basically just, hey, great to see you guys again. It was super fun that we could get together last week. We actually had something like, I think it was 39 total people show up at the park last week, which was way more than I was expecting, especially given you know COVID and anxieties over that and um, just the crazy last couple of weeks in the Twin Cities. So uh, it was great to have almost 40 people there. A lot of people went and picked up groceries and dropped them off at local drop-off points. Uh, we were going to clean, but so much had been done already. Uh, the resilience of our Twin Cities is pretty cool. So much had been cleaned that there, there was really no need for cleaning. So then a number of us went to do um, kind of a march, uh, prayer walk march down um, in Minneapolis. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, I have at the top of my notes here, my Word document, um, th- th- there are certain quotes that have been passing around social media almost almost too much. You see a lot of them. There was one that I saw just once though, but it really, it struck me and I kind of had it as a header as I wrote this sermon. And it's from Teresa of Avila. I don't know if you've seen this on social media, but uh, she said, the world is burning. Now is not the time to be talking of unimportant things. Um, and I, I didn't even look into the history of it. I have no idea what the context is, but I just thought, man, how appropriate for this time and for me as I draft this. And so I was thinking, especially just just shy of two weeks ago when when George Floyd was first killed, um, I was reminded of when I was a teenager, how one of my friends had just bought for 2004 a state-of-the-art printer, which is still pretty advanced back then. And they were printing false money. This is, you know, when I was a 17-year-old. And, you know, they didn't lack any money. And they were only printing in $1 and $5 increments. They weren't trying to make it any sort of real racket. But they were printing false money and using special papers, so it felt pretty close to legit. We couldn't really tell the difference when we had a stack, you know, or they showed me this. Um, So I didn't join in in this, but I also didn't report them. And Pizza Hut was the main victim, and it probably never went above, you know, 40 or 50 total dollars that they spent. Um, And and I just reflected on this, that like when you're a young white kid, especially a a boy, uh, these things are kind of a joke, right? You know, you're, you're being a teenager, getting away with what you can, because that's kind of what teenage boys often do. Um, if you're a teenage boy listening to this, you have you don't have permission from me to <laughs> disobey the law. Um, but yeah, you, you just know without a doubt that you will not be, uh, probably not even have the cops called on you, let alone be choked to death in the street for it. Um, but as we know, that's not how it happened for George Floyd. And I just thought, man, the the juxtaposition of him, you know, having the, the cops called on him that ended up becoming fatal, lethal to him versus some of my friends just palling around Litchfield, Minnesota and getting free pizza through these, you know, illicit bills. Uh, the, the, the contrast there was just striking and I can't get it out of my head how much of a joke that was to my friends growing up, but how just awful and terrible it is for George Floyd. So I just kept thinking, man, we have so far to go. Um, so I, I will talk about a few things today. I, these themes kept kept uh, evolving so quickly that I almost can't do one message that encompasses it all. So I want to approach this in almost episodes. I want to talk first about injustice toward the marginalized, toward the oppressed. And then later, I want to talk about riots and things like that. But I can't seem to do both well. So I want to talk about both of them separately. So first, I want to talk about injustice. Uh, and in talking about what the Bible has to say about some of the things that have been going on these last weeks, I was it was easy to think about what the Bible says about injustice, you know, about the strong oppressing the weak, 
Uh, it talks so much about the marginalized. But have you guys ever asked, what does the Bible have to say about race? And what does it have to say about racial minorities or the marginalized? And if you actually look for what the Bible has to say about race, you won't actually find much. Now, there's some like Jew-Gentile divide and things like that. Um, you, know, you can get at some of this kind of adjacently through the Good Samaritan. Um, but most of the issues of race in the Bible are actually dealing with tribalistic or religious hatred. And race is only kind of a second consideration after that. But the, the, the thing that causes the, or that ferments, or foments the problem is often um, tribalistic or religious hatred. Whereas the kind of racism that we have learned about, we've grown up with, the systems that we're sort of bathed in here, often have to do with color of skin and ethnic background. And if you look directly for the Bible talking about that kind of racism based on color of skin, um, you won't actually find anything on it. And that's actually because, and I, I couldn't believe this when I first heard this when I was an undergrad, that racism based on uh, prejudice against others based on the color of their skin is actually a fairly new thing in the world that came about largely after the enslavement of African peoples from you know, the British Empire and other European peoples. So the Bible speaks a lot about marginalized, oppressed, and poor people uh, and how, how they're treated. And humans throughout history always have some kind of a system for uh, status or for the, the, the haves and the have-nots. Uh, India had a caste system. You could be either darker or lighter. The color of your skin didn't matter. You were just, you were born into a certain caste, whether the high all the way down to the low. I think there's five or different ones. Uh, Europeans, you know, my ancestors had nobles and peasants. There was wealthy and poor, landowner and non-landowner in the Greek system for who could vote, who not. In Rome, they had citizens and slaves, conquered and conquerors. Uh, so this subjugation always finds its way into our systems, but the kind of subjugation is different depending on the culture and the time in, histor in history. And really each system is about as meaningless as another, but it's just the fact is some kind of subjugation finds its way into every human culture, but they kind of pick and choose which they, they base their society on. And in our society, it tends to be based on skin color or racial background. And it started, it started as a, not that it's okay, but it was, um, it was a more familiar to human history kind of subjugation where you had citizens and slaves or the haves and the have-nots. It's just that all of the haves were white and all of the have-nots were black for so long in our country that the actual colors of people themselves came to be associated with this whole, with, with injustice, with, with racism. Uh, and it's interesting, like if you look at Roman emperors and stuff, you'll find many black Roman emperors, leading theologians in the early church, like color didn't matter. It was more just if you were a citizen or not. So anyway, just a, it's an interesting thing to know that racism based on color of skin is a pretty new thing in the history of the world. It's about just four or 500 years old. Uh, other, other systems work differently. Um, so it's just, it's good to know that that's not even in, that's not even in human nature, right? Like when you watch kids play with, uh, you, you watch like a room full of adults of like whites or Latinos and blacks and adults all kind of separate into their own little <laughs> groups, but then their kids will all play with each other. Right? So it's not like a, a, it's not a natural thing to be racist based on color of skin. That is a learned thing. And it's not how even our own ancestors saw things. Um, so again, if you look up racism or race in the Bible by that definition, you won't really find much of that. But what you do find a ton of is talk of marginalization, the poor, kind of the broader category that there are haves and have nots. Um, so I wanted to talk about what we're going through and look toward the Bible's passages on marginalization or how it views the poor. Because even though it's not talking about race specifically as we see it, it's talking about the same kind of have and have not oppression that we mostly experience through race 
uh, in our country. And so uh, notice so many of these verses talking about the poor are using the word poor as sort of a shorthand for just those who are oppressed or marginalized in general. Uh, It sort of presumes that oppression is the reason these people are poor. So I'm just going to read a few uh, verses. Uh, I won't even cite them all because there's a number. So it's just from Psalms. I'll read a few. Um, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in in the safety for which he longs. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. So all throughout the Bible, these are just like, I didn't even cherry pick. I just, I did a search for poor, for marginalized, for oppressed, some of those things. And I just started pulling verses at random because the entire witness of the Bible is unified on this. God is very clear that those who, the haves, when that they when they uh, draw the sword and bend their bows toward the oppressed, that God will turn those weapons back on the oppressor. And that is a clear message all throughout. Uh, when God in Psalms talks about a biblical king, he says, uh, may he judge your people, he, the biblical king, uh, a biblical leader judges his people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he, this biblical leader, defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. So there's this precedent for biblical leadership being crushing the oppressor and raising up the poor, the fatherless, the widow, those who are have-nots in their society. I'll read a couple from Proverbs. I want you to see this is a full Bible, Old Testament, New Testament emphasis. Proverbs says, The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. If you want to look into redlining, mortgage, banking crises, and how those things have been uh, wielded against the poor, you can see that in our society too. That the, the fallow ground of the poor would, would yield much food, but it's swept away through injustice. Uh, do you guys know where the most or the, where the richest soil and minerals are in the entire world? Just think about it. It's actually in the continent of Africa. The continent of Africa has the richest uh, soil and best uh, mineral deposits in the world. So they're not poor because of a lack of resources, but they're poor because of injustice, both internally against each other, but also a ton of colonialism and, and outside injustice. Let me read a few more verses from uh, Proverbs still. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And so that's some Old Testament verses. Let me just read a few more from Jesus just to give you a sampling. And again, these are picked at random. I wasn't even looking for the best ones. I just started pulling verses. This is everywhere. Uh, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when you guys know this is one of my favorite passages, when Jesus is asked, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Uh, And then Jesus tells them, you know, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And he's citing directly word for word from Isaiah about the Messiah who is to come. Um, And he's saying here, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year 
of the Lord's favor. So we see this consistent theme, Old Testament, New Testament. We could go on to Paul and continue, but I, I won't here. But we see very clearly in the words of Christ that uh, he was sent to set at liberty those who are living under oppression, under marginalization. So there's a tendency in some, um, I don't know, I, I don't know the right word, word to, you know, white evangelical churches, traditional evangelical churches to say, why are we talking about racism or marginalization, we should really just focus on the gospel. And, and I've, as I've said in other sermons, Jesus says, no, I was sent for this purpose to proclaim liberty to those who are oppressed. And he tells us later, he says, go and do likewise, right? Be sent into the world as I was sent. And so it's actually part of following Jesus is to be sent like he was sent. And he was sent to also bring his kingdom on earth now, not just a ticket to heaven later, but to bring justice now. And we're sent for those same things. So to say, let's just focus on the gospel is completely wrongheaded and it completely misses the ministry of Jesus on earth, bringing his kingdom now and justice now. So what's tragic is I read a study of evangelicals once, and I think this would be a little bit better now, but when a group full of evangelical pastors, I, I think they were white or they might just be evangelical pastors in general, um, but when a group was asked to just name from the top of their heads, even just paraphrased, when they were asked to quote one verse about poverty, and they, they wrote it down, just paraphrased whatever they could remember, 80% of the room wrote the verse, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me, when Jesus is, says this to his disciples. And when taken out of context, this verse can kind of give this fatalistic view like, oh, well, the marginalized or the oppressed, the poor, the have-nots will always be here, so let's just focus on Jesus. And that tends to be the verse that sticks in so many evangelicals' minds because it kind of fits the, the biases in some of our backgrounds, some of our past. But a good 98% of the verses about those who are marginalized, those who are poor, those who are living under an unjust system, uh, about 98% of those verses are about how God seeks justice for them and rewards those who uh, lift them up and who uh, that God pursues or rather um, he goes after the people that are that are not helping the poor. Um, and so it just it was just devastating that I was like, man, the best that we can do, and the first thing that comes into so many even evangelical leaders' minds is, well, you know, you'll always have the marginalized. You'll always have some kind of poor. So let's just focus on the gospel. Like, let's just focus on Jesus because, you know, you can't really change the, the problems of society. Uh, but God is so clear that even if you don't have some of these verses memorized or in the back of your head, even if you just ask yourself the question when confronted with any difficulty and, you, and, and you're wondering how you ought to respond, just asking yourself the question, what would Jesus do? Um, it tends to give you the answer. You know, like think about somebody that you know really well. If someone said, hey, give me quotes from that person, you might be like, what? But if someone said, how would that person respond to such and such an event? You, can, you know the person, you know their character. Even if you can't specifically cite their arguments, you know how a person would respond to a, a specific thing. And in the same way, even if you don't have a full like biblical framework for justice, just asking, well, what would Jesus do in this scenario? You know, you've got someone that was beaten and laying on the side of the road. What would Jesus do there? Oh, I know, like, because I've read not only the Good Samaritan, but all these other stories, and you, you just know intuitively, or at least you have a good approximation as to knowing how Jesus would act. And in the same way, when you look at our own unjust systems, if you just say, well, what would Jesus actually do about this? You can at least approach, uh, I think, a, a more correct answer than if you wade into some of the arguments from different sides. Um, 
So we, we know that we work for justice and we work to care for the marginalized. Again, remember the story of the Good Samaritan. God despises religious rulers who walk by the other side of the road. But the one who shows mercy and the one who shows compassion, that person is the true neighbor, even if they are from this race that the Jews didn't get along with. Now, I want to pivot here because immediately after the killing of George Floyd, I had this whole message on racial injustice planned, but then it, it seemed less appropriate toward the end of the week, as, as appropriate as that still is, our city was being burned down by maybe the, you know, if, if you had all of these protesters who are carrying a good mes message, including so many uh, peaceful protesters from Capital City who got out and marched, but maybe, I don't know, 0.5, 1%, 2%, whatever the number is of the people out there were arsonists or were looting or were destroying our city in various ways. And so it seemed harder to rail against police brutality when police buildings were being burned down. It's like, okay, well, yes, that's true. But, you know, so I wanted to approach these two separately. Um, and so it just, it kind of confused motives a bit. And I think if you look, you could just Google this. Martin Luther King Jr. has some great stuff uh, on condemning riots. And he just, he nails it. He says, you obviously can't justify riots. Like some people were even saying like, oh, well, these, like all these arsonists and riots, like, yeah, we really had that coming. Like that should absolutely happen to our society. Now those were mostly coastal reporters saying this before the riots came to them. And it changes when it's your own corner store, when it's your own black owned business, when it's your own favorite coffee shop. It's like, well, these shouldn't get burned down, though we need to see change and justice. But Martin Luther King Jr. made a great point when he said he, he condemned all uh, rioting, that when peaceful protests turned into rioting, he condemned that. But he said, you have to understand why it happens and almost be sympathetic to why it happens. And this reminded me of Hay, H-A-Y. Um, so my dad grew up on a farm and some of the wisdom, some of the stories that he would tell still somehow are bouncing around in my subconscious. And I, I found myself thinking on this during this, um, when thinking about why rioting happens. So I don't know if you knew this, uh, before people understood germ theory, they didn't know why this happened. But farmers knew that if you put hay into silos or storage areas, barns, whatever they do, again, I'm not a farmer, so I might use some wrong terms here, but the premise is correct, that when you store a bunch of hay, if it is not ventilated properly, if it has too much moisture content, that the hay will actually spontaneously combust and all erupt in fire. Um, now they didn't know germ theory. So it just, I actually seemed like hay would spontaneously just start on fire. And then once we learn more, we learned that there's a certain kind of bacteria that grows in hay. And this bacteria puts off a ton of heat as it's by one of its byproducts at one of its wastes from eating the hay, um, or living in it or whatever it does. And so if you have hay, you have to store it at 15% moisture content. I don't know how they measure that, but that's the number. 15% moisture content or under. And then you can store the hay and you'll be just fine. It will not alight and just you won't ruin an entire crop. Um, but I was, as I was researching this to try to get some of the details right, I read of um, you know, $10 million fires where all of the hay, you know, like that just huge like mega farms will, will store all this hay and it'll all just burn up. Uh, and what happens is if you store hay at say 15, 16, 17% moisture content, you have to ventilate it just right. You have to take all these extra precautions to, to try to not get it to enter into this combustion state. And so farmers, long before, you know, big thermometers and all the rest, would just take a long iron stick 
and just stick it straight into the, I don't know if they were bales or just loose hay. I don't know how they store it, but they'd stick it into the hay. And then every day they'd go out and grab the iron rod and hay will tend to rise to about 130 degrees. And you're still somewhat in the safe at that point. Uh, and at 130, you can touch the rod and you kind of have to like hot potato it, but you can still hold on to it, but it's, it's quite hot. Um, maybe like a cup of coffee or something. You could, you could hold it even though you don't want to just like squeeze the thing. Um, but if you touch it and it's too hot to the touch, you're in a really dangerous spot then. Um, and I guess the way the bacteria works is hay will always be hot when you store it. Like it might just, you know, the, the barn or whatever that you store it in might be 110, 115 degrees because of this, you know, combustion happening. Um, but once it hits 130, um, it, if it creeps up toward 150, what happens is uh, there's a certain new kind of bacteria that can then live in the hay at 150 degrees. And even though 150 is far below its burning point, it's basically, uh, it's, it's the end right there. Once it hits 150, you get this other kind of bacteria that can grow in there and they produce way more heat. And so you're looking at uh, a full fire once you hit that temperature. So anyway, that's a, that's sort of a test for farmers is, is if they touch the iron and it's too, and it's getting quite hot or too hot to the touch, they need to like get all hands on deck and like take all the hay apart and like get it out of there so that it won't burn the rest down. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about injustice and relating this to the riots, right? Like there are some countries, like everyone, we're humans, right? Because of the fall, because of sin, there will be injustice no matter how good a system is. Um, but there are some countries that you could say whose moisture content is well below 15%, right? They still have injustice, they still have problems, but they're not um, in a dangerous enough spot where they're waiting for the whole thing to erupt in flames, right? And I think the U.S., one of our problems, especially with racism, which is our, our um, the sin that, uh, what, what, like our national sin, um, is that I think our moisture content might be somewhere around 16 or 17 to use this hay metaphor. So we're not a totalitarian state. We're not like some, you know, a developing nation that has all sorts of problems all the time. So we can sort of move on for sometimes decades. And at least if you're in a more privileged class, you can sometimes go decades without really seeing much of a big problem because you're near 15%, right? Like you're near the cutoff, but you're still slightly above it. And so this, like this, this whole uh, group of, uh, or this whole like heap of hay, you could say, is reaching that point where there's almost no return, but it's just barely staying under it. And then something happens, right? Like some fan gets turned off or you have an extra hot day or just some little thing is all it takes. But that little thing was absolutely not why the entire, you know, whatever, pallet or whatever you call the hay, it's not that one little thing is not what sent the whole thing into flames. I mean, you had systemic problems for months beforehand leading up to that fire that destroyed all the hay, right? So again, it's not a perfect analogy, no analogy is, but I think our system is, is quite similar that we have this unjust system that um, it, it can be easy to look the other way sometimes for, for quite some time because it might not seem bad or it might not seem unjust enough if you're maybe like many of us listening. Um, but it's, it's right at that point. It's, it's too hot. It's just it's the, the iron is in the hay and it's too hot to touch. And all it takes is maybe one little thing, an extra hot day or no wind or something, and that thing will catch and the whole thing will erupt. And so um, I always think of that when I read Martin Luther King's stance on riots and just his almost humility toward it like yeah I, you know we condemn all riots but you have to understand like they they happen for a reason and you can keep expecting them if you have a system that breeds that kind of combustion that kind of heat all the time um 
yes, we have, we have a long way to go. Uh, as you saw this, everyone posted this, uh, but riots are the language of the unheard, as he said. And again, um, in a system where all of that tension is building up, it will boil over into riots until we figure out justice. Not that riots are acceptable, but they will keep happening. Um, I read something, I think it was a quote from Will Smith, of, of all people. He said, um, it's something, I don't have it word for word, it was something like, uh, racism isn't getting worse or injustice isn't getting worse, it's just we're getting it on camera now. Um, and so if you go back and you compare the very first Minneapolis Police Department statement on what happened to George Floyd and then watch the video, it's astonishing. Uh, what they I forget, I don't want to misquote them, but they basically said one thing um, and made it sound like George Floyd just sort of died later. And, oops, you know, too bad. And then you watch the video and you're like, uh-uh, like he was killed on the street, you know. Um, and if you... Uh, <laughs> If you then go back and look at all the other police statements from before the era of smartphones videoing these things, you realize, oh my gosh, how many of those are the same kind of thing? How many police statements for the last, you know, 100 years and then even pre-police statements before that for the last 400 years have been kind of uh, sweeping black murders uh, under the rug and, you know, white uh, law enforcement just sort of get away with it when really now that we have video cameras, we can see what's actually happening. Um, black men die mysteriously in police custody all the time. Um, and it, it, can be a, it can be a difficult exercise to go and, and look at the comparisons between what the police say and what the videos show. Um, so I want to remind us that, that God reveals in Scripture what justice looks like, what his kingdom on earth looks like, uh, what a just life for the marginalized and the oppressed should look like. Uh, and the Bible says that when these things happen, when, when, when uh, justice increases on earth, that it actually is his kingdom coming to earth in ever-increasing measures. And he reminds us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And one of our driving motivations at Capital City is to bring God's kingdom. I think it's the closest thing. It might be the kind of key statement. Like, what is, like, what is your vision or mission statement? It's like, well, his kingdom come, his will be done. It's kind of become our... Uh, rallying statement. So we need justice on earth. We need mercy. And the church has had a long lead in those conversations, not particularly the white church, uh, but black and Latino churches, minority churches have. And the clarion call for justice for the marginalized is really as biblical as it gets, even if some haven't been listening. If you read scripture seriously with really any measure, you can't avoid this repeated call for justice for the marginalized, for the have-nots. Um, and predominantly for white churches, one of the first moves is not jumping in and trying to lead the conversation. Again, black churches have been there really forever. Uh, what we need to do is to have the burden for injustice and marginalization uh, grow in our hearts to match what God says about it. So we need that conviction to grow where we see the pain and conviction that God and the biblical writers have for injustice. We need to feel that in our own hearts as well. And not because the media says so, or not because your Facebook feed says so, but because the Bible says so, and the Holy Spirit speaks into your heart, showing the same thing. Um, and we need to learn, we need to listen, and we need to partner uh, with people who have been there for a long time, uh, like people like The Way, some of our brothers and sisters in other churches in St. Paul have been in these conversations since well before Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and it's time for us to listen, to learn, and to partner and help. And uh, what amazing reminder and encouragement that tonight, what Rose was mentioning, you know, that we could stand alongside our brothers and sisters 
at the way tonight in solidarity. We can listen, um, we can help tune our ears and our hearts and stand alongside them. Uh, you know, I was, it's just a personal story here. Uh, when black Christian friends call me a brother in Christ, I've always been so tremendously honored and also felt like, well, I would never call them a brother in Christ because I don't feel like I even am worthy, if that makes sense. So theologically I am, uh, I know that we're brothers in Christ, but for so long, I would just feel so touched when they called me a brother. I'm like, man, you, you would dare call me a brother, but I don't even wanna, like with all the history and with all the stuff, you know, in the past, I, I just didn't feel like I had the right to do that. And it's been really cool working alongside the way and partnering in different ways. Cause I feel like I can call the members of the way, I can call Joseph and these, I can call them my brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, still there's a, there's so long, there's such a long way to go, but I feel like if if predominantly white churches can can keep moving in this direction where we not just realize a theological truth, but these are brothers and sisters in Christ, but actually step alongside them and say, we are, I mean, we are, we're shoulder to shoulder here. We're brothers and sisters in Christ working together on this. I just, I can't imagine what the next few years can bring in the church. Uh, so one this is a different sermon. Normally, I'm like, I start with a text and go from there. But with all the things happening, I wanted to respond. And again, it's kind of episodic with two or three different uh, focuses, foci here. Um, but the application is a little bit different, too. Um, during Black History Month, we talked about doing uh, like a book reading or a book sort of club as a church. And then COVID hit almost immediately after. Right, actually, right as our Black History Month was ending is when COVID hit and we had to start meeting online. So any hopes for new embodied, you know, meeting groups and stuff, just kind of, we, we just went on coast for a while. But this has sort of brought this conversation back even before we're able to meet together. And we realized, you know, we, we wanted to read some book together on something to do with uh, racism, with oppression, with um, the, the sins of white churches. And there are so many good choices. Um, there's so many things that we that we could read that would, would go well. But uh, we were just talking, the leadership team was talking a bit ago about a, a pretty easy like entry level, like this is like story-based rather than like systemic st statistics-based book to start off on uh, would be Just Mercy. And so I, I know probably a third of the church has already read it, uh, but we've decided it's, it's it, the time is now rather than waiting to get back together. We were always going to do this, but I think it's time to start it a little earlier given what's happening in our Twin Cities, that uh, Capital City will be buying this book for everyone. Now, if we were all meeting together, we could just buy a stack of them and hand them out. Uh, but because of where we're at still with meeting on Zoom and all the rest, um, I'll be in touch in a couple of days and people could could choose. If you're a Kindle person, if you're a paper book person, or if you really like dig audiobooks, you know, through whatever app you use, we can figure out a way to get everyone this book. The church is going to buy it and then we'll send out details as to how, how we'll actually conduct the groups. But basically we'll just go through this book as a church because we've just seen that um, if you don't know people who are maybe oppressed or from a marginalized class, it just, it's so much harder to relate. And, and one of the great things of study after study shows that people who read are much better at um, uh, empathy and um, imagining the plight of others because they've actually entered into the world through their lens. Uh, and so readers, uh, the more someone reads, the more empathetic they are uh, toward people who don't come from their own background. So we're going to be reading through this as a church and we'll send out details in a little bit. But I wanted you to know that's one of the main applications of this sermon is rather than like some you know, more like theologically based uh, message. I'm just going to say like, we're, what we're going to do as a church is we're going to read through this book um, because the more time we spend doing these things, 
um, I think the more we'll mature and realize the errors of the past. I almost would put this as a challenge. Like if anyone, if you know anyone who really doesn't get some of this stuff, or if you can tell on Facebook, like it's just absolutely not, I almost guarantee you they've never read a first person, you know, story uh, about these issues. Like if someone's going to just continue in stone cold racism, they're probably not even giving the other side uh, a chance, right? They're just sort of um, stewing in their own views, listening to people who already agree with what they, with what they think. Um, but if you truly read other people's opinions, if you jump into the shoes of others, it's really hard not to be changed. And that's just part of the goal: is to jump into, you know, through through Brian Stevenson's book and through then some of the lenses that you see of the the prisoners and the condemned people he he helps. Um, it can really change things. So talking about kids are yelling in the other room here. Um, God demands justice for the marginalized and capital city won't look the other way. So I think this will be a really cool way to move forward. And remember that it's in the cross of Christ that we have the tools for this job. Honestly, outside of that, I don't know, like, I don't know how secular society has a hope for racial reconciliation. I mean, the work of repentance, seeing the sins of Christians in the past, of white Christians, seeing that and repenting can be had. This can be done through the cross. This is the work of the cross um, in our in our world and the work of unity that breaking down those dividing walls of hostility between races like Ephesians 2 talks about the the, the uh, racial reconciliation and, and the unity between races can be had only I think in the work of Jesus on the cross and I just think like when I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with Joseph and doing this or that thing I think like man like I though I don't know this for sure if you go a few generations back to when I had, you know, 256, what, great, 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 great grandparents, whatever, I am absolutely probably the descendant of a slave owner, and at least, at least multiple fold once you go back a few generations. Uh, and he is almost assuredly, uh, assuredly the descendant of a slave. And like for us to stand shoulder to shoulder and move for bringing the kingdom of God on earth, for sharing the gospel here, I mean, that is an, a beautiful picture of, of the unity that we can have in Jesus. Like, that's what it means to break down the dividing wall of hostility, that the sons of slave owners and the sons of slaves can join together hand in hand and seek uh, God's will on earth. Um, so we'll get you details on the this book reading program. And uh, one more reminder to meet all the, all the inf information is in the email from either yesterday or the day before. But come out tonight at 6 and join the way. In Minneapolis, I'll, I'll pray to close us. Lord, we we thank you that the uh, descendants of slaves and descendants of slave owners can stand uh, at the foot of the cross and be united through what you've done to break down this dividing wall of hostility. Lord, we pray for open eyes. We pray that we would be awake and aware of all of the complicity uh, of our own ancestors and our own selves in benefiting from a system where the deck is stacked to favor um, the. The majority. Um, we pray that you would help us to repent, to move forward, to work toward justice, and to work toward your gospel um, in bringing the kingdom on earth. And we pray for this service tonight with the way that you would bless it, that it would go really well, um, and that you just send your Holy Spirit in that time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.